Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and today we're going to talk about drug legalization. This is not a new topic to libertarians per se, but there are many reasons why people, you know, embrace, oh, wow, we should end prohibition of marijuana or even all drugs. And so there are many people who, you know, come to that conclusion for different reasons, I came to it becoming a libertarian, realizing that, oh, that's a consistent way to, to think about things. But other people come to it for other reasons. And we have Christina Dent, who is the founder of End It For Good, which is an education and advocacy organization working to end criminal approach to drugs and shift to a health-centered approach. Christina, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So you have a little bit different journey from maybe some libertarians, although maybe it is similar. I haven't heard everyone's story who listens to this podcast. So I I want you to share your story because you were a politically conservative Christian. You still consider yourself politically conservative. Mm -hmm. And yet with this particular issue, the legalization of, and, and you can get into which drugs, how many, how, mm-hmm. how long, how, how, many, what, how long is your list kind of stuff in your story. Your journey to that is, is a little bit different. So I want to kind of let you tell your story a little bit, and then we'll just kind of get into some issues that I know you're a little bit more well-versed than I am and possibly our listeners. So I want to kind of get those out on the table and talk about why this is an important issue. Yeah. Yeah. This is, um, Definitely not an issue I ever thought that I would be working on. The first time I ever heard anybody that I knew mention legalizing drugs uh, in any sort of way where they were considering it and saying, I don't know, you know, what what do you think? Should drugs be legal? I can just remember feeling so angry. I just walked away. It was, I could not fathom how someone who was a Christian could even be talking about that. I, I had, I didn't even know that was a position anybody held at all, Christian or not. And it just, to me, in my mind, what I heard was, do you think it's okay for people to destroy their lives with drugs? Is that just okay? Well, no, that's not okay at all. And I had no other context to understand that position from uh, until we became foster parents. So that happened about five years ago. And through foster care is where I first kind of saw the drug war up close for the first time. So I grew up in a politically conservative home, uh, wonderful Christian home, very happy childhood. I never used drugs growing up, didn't have friends that were using drugs. It just was not on my radar at all. Um, I went to a, a Christian liberal arts college. I have a degree in Bible. My world is devoid of <laughs> drug use. Um, was then, is now. It just is not on on my personal radar. So my passion for this issue is definitely not from a position of uh, I want people using drugs or I want to be able to use them. It really is because I am passionate about people and came to see every time that this is really an issue of how we handle people is really what happens with how we handle drugs. So when we became a foster family five years ago, was the first time I began to see what does the drug war look like played out in the lives of real people? So one of our foster sons came to us uh, straight from the hospital. His mom had been using um, illegal drugs while she was pregnant. And in Mississippi, that is 
automatic removal. It was at that time and still is, generally speaking, the case for babies. And so he was removed from her custody at the hospital. And when he was discharged, he was brought to our house. And I did not know anything about addiction, never been close to addiction before. And I just thought a mom who used drugs while she was pregnant must not love her child. I couldn't, had no other category for it than that. And so I took him, uh, our foster son, to go to his first visit with his mom um, at the local child welfare office and um, was not expecting what happened, which is I pulled into the parking lot and I popped his car seat out of my car and I turned around and had my other three little boys with me. And there comes his mom, Joanne, sprinting across the parking lot with tears streaming down her face. And she just covers her son with kisses while he's in his car seat as I'm kind of awkwardly standing there holding it, wondering what on earth, this is not at all what I thought about somebody who used drugs while they were pregnant. And I was very suspicious. I thought maybe this is a just a show. Maybe she wants me to put in a good word with her social worker. So maybe, you know, to get custody back faster. But this doesn't fit at all with what I think about people who are addicted to drugs and mothers who would use drugs while they were pregnant. And um, so he came, she spent an hour with him, what was allowed, and then she left for inpatient drug treatment. And um, her son came back to our house. And over time, she would call, she was in treatment, she'd call me once a day. And she would ask me to put her on speakerphone. And she would sing to him over the phone and ask me all about every little detail about him. She sent a little um, lovey thing for him to sleep with. Uh, she said, can you just put it next to him? I want him to still be able to smell my smell. Now, I'm a, a mother who has um, biological children and adopted son. Um, I know about bonding when babies are born. And I knew uh, that's all the language of a mother who understands how important the bond with their baby in those first weeks, months, year of life is. Uh, and I just could not fit, put this together in my mind. What is happening here? Because Everything that I'm seeing from Joanne is that she is a mother like me who loves her son just as much as I love my sons. And yet she's struggling with what I came to see is a really complex health crisis, a crisis of a lot of different things, maybe spiritual crisis, health crisis, um, social crisis, lots of crises, but not a criminal justice crisis. Um, and I began to feel really uncomfortable because I knew uh, for one, it was shaking deeply held beliefs about what I thought about people who use drugs and are struggling with addiction. But also, I knew that we were putting people like Joanne in prison every single day in Mississippi. We have the third highest incarceration rate in the country and across the nation and across the world. And what I was seeing is, oh, my gosh, what would happen if we put Joanne in prison? Her son would would lose out on a childhood with a mother who clearly loves him, even though she's also struggling with this health crisis. She needs help. She needs everything we have that can possibly give her and him the best opportunity for her to stay sober and be able to parent him because she clearly loves him. And I saw that over time. The more I got to know her, the more I realized this is not a show. This is not an act. This is, this is Joanne. This is who she is. And she is a mom just like me. And um, over time, that that earthquake of, wait a second, but we're putting Joanne's in prison every day, got to a point where I 
decided I needed to go on on a journey to learn because I knew also about childhood trauma. I knew that for her son to be separated from his mom would be extremely traumatic for him, even in his infancy, much less later on in life. I knew a lot about kind of the, the from our foster parent training, what happens over the course of um, cyclical trauma, like would happen if we put Joanne in prison uh, because of the strain it would put on her extended family and on her son as he was growing up and all of those family structures. So I went on this journey to learn uh, what was really happening with drugs and that. Um, so I came to legalization and I would say legalization of all drugs is the best possible way to handle them in a way that causes the least amount of societal harm. Um, so I feel like I backed into that. I didn't, uh, I didn't come to that ideologically. I came to it from the end of a journey of trying to learn how can we have the least amount of harm, not just to people who use drugs, but to the rest of society and just came to believe that at, at every stage of drugs, whether we're talking about the market that they're being sold in, who's producing and selling those drugs and who's buying those drugs and using them. So, so every stage, production, sale, use, and what's actually being used, that we have astronomically more harm from criminalizing than we do from legalizing. And that's how I came to that, that belief. And I think the, the amount of harm that's being done by criminalizing is, I think, one of the biggest policy issues of our time that, if we reversed it, could have the most impact on the most people. One of them, there's, you know, there's a lot of them, there's a lot of harm in the world, but I think this is one of the the biggest ones of our time that could stop policy-driven harm to people um, and preserve lives and families and decrease crime in our communities and all sorts of other things that we can get into those details. But I just became really convinced that this is such a big issue that I wanted to dedicate part of my life to ending it, to ending the criminal approach to drugs and moving back to a health-centered approach. And when you look at what is a health-centered approach to drugs, that is a legal regulated market. That, that's, a, that's where we treat drugs in the way that best impacts public health um, and does the least amount of harm. And that's what I came to to believe is uh, is the best way for us to move forward. You know, your story about Joanne in the parking lot and your realization that she is a mom and she is a mom who understands that she has a responsibility and a connection with her, with her child. Um, I, I don't think a lot of people have seen that sort of situation. Like, you know, my interaction with people who are drug addicts is what I catch on the news, right? And so, and, and I think mm -hmm. that's probably the case with a lot of people. Um, a lot of possibly conservative Christians, they, you know, who may not be in ministry in this direction. And so they hear about drug addicts being locked up. They hear about drug addicts causing problems, you know, for their children. Mm -hmm. And there's a stereotype that what you just said doesn't, that doesn't fit that stereotype. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what circumstances people come into because I grew up in a church that was really conservative, probably similar to what you grew up with, you know, 
I went to Bible college as well. Like we, I didn't experiment with drugs. You know, for me, it was experimenting with non-Christian mm-hmm. music. <laughs> you know, that was the level yeah. that we were dealing with. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's there's a whole different world. And I was right. under the impression up until maybe eight to ten years ago that you know it was just all a matter of choice and individual responsibility. And you know, these people, yeah, sorry, they're a victim of their circumstance, but they do have free agency, and therefore. Um, you know, they've made bad choices. And so that's their fault. That's not on us. And mm-hmm. I, I've certainly come to the realization that it is way more complicated than that. Um, mm-hmm. And it is, it's also callous for me to sit and say, oh, well, that's just, that's, well, they just better, you know, have responsibility, you know, and that's just their problem. So, you know, your story kind of counteracts the, oh, wait we are talking about real people here. And like that's, that, that's mm-hmm. the, the agent there is that we're talking about real people. We're talking about real harm. We're talking about something that violates uh, people's sort of fundamental dignity in, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't have a follow-up question right there for you, but um, I don't know if you want to make any comments on the stereotypes. Yeah, so... Um... I find two things that happen. I talk about this with a lot of people. I do a lot of presentations. I'm speaking to groups and um, often hosting discussion after that. And there's a lot of people who will say, well, look, my experience with drug use and addiction is very different from, you know, your experience with Joanne. And so I can't agree with you because our, you know, the addiction that I experienced in my family was incredibly destructive. Mm-hmm. Um, and And I would say to them, we agree then that we should be handling drugs in the way that causes less harm to families like yours, whether or not you're, I I see my experience with Joanne humanized addiction to me. I think that is always the right thing, especially from a Christian perspective. We're always dealing with human beings made in the image of God. Um, But, but whether or not our experience is the same, Joanne drew me into the issue to learn how, how can we best handle drugs? Uh, and different people come to that issue with very different experiences. But I think if if you look at the issue, um, you can see that whether or not your the experience of addiction is less harmful or more harmful, obviously we all want it to be less harmful to people. I could never support the legalization of drugs if I thought I was sacrificing people's families for their, you know, for the user's dignity. But, you know, it's going to destroy your family, but at least it treats you humanly. Uh, what I'm advocating for is is a world where I see everybody gets a better outcome, a better chance at a better outcome, including the families of people who are struggling with addiction. So I want to talk about why that is, because that can be very difficult for people to envision mm-hmm. because we experience addiction in a criminalized market in such harmful ways. And it's hard for us to envision a world where it looked any different, although it did prior to the criminalization of drugs. And I think it will again when we end that. So if you look at what happens to a market when you criminalize it, you go from, you know, legal regulated substances on a shelf to criminalize, which means it doesn't go away. That's an important point for people. If you have a popular substance, criminalizing it does not make that substance go away. It changes the market that it operates in. So it's now an underground market, which means only people who are willing to break the law can sell it, produce it, and make the money from it. Um, so the vast majority of you know gang and cartel activity in our world, and terrorist activity too, is being funded by drug prohibition. It's being funded by the underground drug market. 
So when I think about, you know, I grew up in West Jackson here in Mississippi in a more comparatively higher crime area. Um, I had friends whose parents wouldn't let them uh, come to my house at night, that sort of thing. And, you know, thinking through my own childhood experience of anxiety over safety and how would that have been different? If we had 50% less crime, if there, if drugs were not being bought and sold on the street, funding gang activity, and the majority of the crime that we have in the world today is driven by drug prohibition, not by the drugs themselves, but by the market that is created from them being prohibited. So we think about community harms of crime that is largely being driven by drug prohibition and would be um, monumentally helped through legal regulation again. Then you have what happens to the substance itself when you criminalize it. So you lose all regulatory control. You can't control potency or purity of it. So you get heroin that's now laced with fentanyl and you don't know how much of it is laced with, how much fentanyl. Is it going to get you high or is it going to kill you? You never know what you're buying on the street. Um, And the vast majority of all opioid overdoses today, 75% of them for the last year that we have data for in 2017, 75% of people who died of an opioid overdose had either heroin or fentanyl in their system. So we're, we're not talking about an overdose crisis that's driven today by people taking legally prescribed opioids and dying from them. We have the majority of people are dying from drugs they got on the street that they don't know what's in them or how potent it is. Um, And so we have thousands and thousands of preventable overdoses that are happening right now that are happening because of prohibition, Um, not from heroin itself, but from what happens to heroin when you don't allow people to know how much of it they're actually using or to use um, a pure supply where they're not also getting other contaminants um, such as fentanyl in it, which is a extremely potent opioid. And then you have what happens to users. You have all of this market harm that happens when you criminalize. You have all this harm to the substance that happens and making it far more deadly when you criminalize. And then what happens to the user when you criminalize them? Um, so you introduce this just cycle of trauma and harm. So you introduce incarceration, which disconnects them from their family and community. Now they have a criminal record when they're coming out of jail, which makes getting a job really difficult. And now you've got this, they've been through this extremely traumatic cycle. Our prisons are horrific places to experience, incredibly dehumanizing and filled with violence and abuse of all sorts. And But we know that trauma is one of the biggest drivers of a risk for whether a person will experiment with drugs in the first place or whether they will become addicted to them if they do experiment with them. So we are using a system that is trauma, that the criminal justice system is a traumatic system, that it is designed to be that way. Uh, But we are using it on an issue that is made worse by trauma. And we are then wondering after 50 years, why hasn't this worked? Well, you can't use trauma to fix a problem that's made worse by trauma. It just doesn't work. It will never work. You cannot traumatize people out of previous trauma in their lives. Um, And that's not to say that all people using drugs have experienced terrible traumas in their childhood or that all people who have trauma use drugs. Certainly those things are not the same, but we're talking about risk factor. Uh, And if we want to decrease risk factors for drug use and addiction, we will stop 
traumatizing people, either you know early in their lives through things like growing up in um, neighborhoods that are riddled with drug crime from the underground market, and also just from the the cycle of incarceration. We have children growing up without parents because their parents have been incarcerated. So the parents are being traumatized and their whole family is experiencing the trauma of that separation from a parent through incarceration. So we are losing on every front with criminalization, market, substance, user. It's not like we're winning on one, but losing in the other two. (laughs) We're losing in all three of them. We have increased harm in every way. And that absolutely is how we experience addiction today. So we experience addiction with people who are trying to find drugs that are more expensive because they're on the underground market. They need more money for that. They're engaging in drug-seeking behavior such as property crime and prostitution. And because we do not allow them to be cared for under the care of a medical doctor. So in most states, Mississippi included, if your doctor believes that you are addicted to the substance that they have been prescribing for you, let's say it's an opioid, um, they are required to stop prescribing you that substance. Um, In Mississippi, they have a a certain number of days to get you into treatment. um, And then they they can be charged if they don't stop prescribing um, Mm. your substance for you. So we cut you off of medical care at the very time where we realize you need medical care the most, that there's a dependency issue growing. And that I think is, is just this fundamental misappropriation of the kind of response that drug use and addiction require because of the kind of issue that we think they are. So we think they are a criminal justice issue, even though for our own families, we realize they're a complex health issue. We want our own family to be helped. Um, But they just are. It's a complex health issue. And using a criminal justice system to address a complex health issue hasn't worked. It can't work. It will never work. And uh, unfortunately, it has led to the deaths of thousands upon thousands of people who could still be alive. When you talk about the trauma, what what exactly do you have in mind there? Some ideas to let us understand, like this starts with some kind of trauma that makes people more prone to addiction and drug use, drug abuse. What, mm-hmm. is, what is that yeah, what kind of trauma? Yeah, there are some great studies called ACEs studies. ACEs stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences, just about the role that childhood trauma plays in poor outcomes later in life or risk factors for poor outcomes, drug use and addiction being two of those, but there are many of them, including uh, other health issues such as cancer and uh, heart disease, uh, social and and relational issues such as being the victim of domestic violence or um, a perpetrator of domestic violence or um, having a difficulty holding um, a job and coming to work on time. There's all sorts of these outcomes that these studies have tracked and found. Um, they looked at what are the kinds of experiences that are um, that create what they call toxic stress in a child's life. Different states have done them using different adverse childhood experiences. I think the first study that was done, um, they used a set of, I think it was five physical traumas, such as were you physically abused as a child? Were you sexually abused? And then five kind of emotional traumas. Did you have an adult that cared about you and, you know, treated you compassionately? Mm -hmm. 
and so there there are lots of you know an interaction with the foster care system is a childhood trauma being uh, separated from a parent through incarceration is a trauma growing up in an unsafe neighborhood is a trauma also having parents who are divorced is a trauma. So some of it is are, are things we think of more as severe traumas. Some of them mm-hmm. um, we, we think of as more, you know, it's a common experience for many people. And so when you look at those and look at what is the drug war doing, it is producing for millions of children in just the United States, multiple childhood traumas that just wouldn't be there. We wouldn't be losing parents to incarceration. And if we if we look at how trauma is is a risk factor for non-problematic drug use becoming problematic, then we have to look at, you know, we are we are causing addiction to happen in some instances. Let's say a person was non-problematically using a substance and after a stint in prison, they come out and just to cope with the emotional distress of that prison experience, they are now problematically using the substance. We've actually created more harm for that family um, than they had going in to that prison experience. So that cycle of trauma, it just keeps perpetuating. We keep loading more children with more painful experiences not not from what would naturally happen or what would happen separate, but actually from the policies of drug prohibition. We're actually giving them these experiences of growing up in neighborhoods where that are racked with gang violence or cartel violence. And then their own risk factors for using drugs experimentally and becoming addicted to them increase. And so at every level, we are using the wrong tool. I think of it often as, you know, what would happen if you gave a doctor a hammer and you said, go and do surgery? Well, it doesn't really matter how well-trained that doctor is. It doesn't matter how much <laughs> good he wants to do with that hammer. Like it, we're never going to get a positive outcome in that surgery. It just is the wrong tool. Mm. He needs doctor tools in that surgery. And we have been for 50 years with marijuana, 100 years for heroin and cocaine, we have been using a hammer for issues that require doctors. And we continue to get terrible outcomes and our prisons are exploding and we keep building more prisons and exploding them and with more people and we have more harm and more harm and we just refuse to admit that actually using the hammer is causing a lot of this harm. Some of that harm is going to be there anyway. That's an important distinction people need to understand. We are not saying, you know, drugs don't cause any harm on their own. We're saying in a world that's broken, that has substances that can be potentially harmful and can be really destructive, what is the best way, a realistic approach to that broken world with broken people who Some of them want to change the way that they feel, and that's been true for all of human history. What are we going to do with those truths, and how can we actually handle those in a way that causes the least amount of harm to people? So my goal has always been that. I I supported a criminal approach to drugs for most of my life because I thought it was decreasing harm to people. That's always been my goal. And only after I kind of took a step back and actually learned about it I came to believe deeply that actually legal regulation is the best way to decrease harm to people. And that's the best way to live out 
that that ethic of wanting to preserve people's lives, wanting to help more people have an opportunity to thrive, um, wanting to decrease the harm right. um, to people. And that's where I landed. You talked about um, we're broken people and we live in a world with broken people. And, you know, first thing that came to mind is including the people that write the laws. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, about this and that those things are broken and those are the things that need fixed as well as, you know, the people who are who are part of it. I mean, those are those are things that in this case go together. Do, do you think it's fair to say that maybe 100 years ago it was acceptable because we didn't know any better then? And now now we know better and therefore we should change our ways. It's hard to know what they knew 100 years ago. I don't really know. I mean, I think, you know, I didn't even live 100 years ago and I thought it was the right thing to do. <laughs> that was back <laughs> five years ago. I thought criminalization was yeah. the right thing to do. Um, I think most people are supporting whatever they're supporting because they think it is the best approach. And what we want to offer people with End It For Good is opportunities to have a non-confrontational, invitational dialogue about what's actually happening and how it could actually be better. Yeah. And I think we do know better. I don't, we didn't know a hundred years about trauma and the role that trauma plays in people's lives and in their, right. in their risk factors, why they use drugs. And so many of them, it is to try to self-medicate from difficult experiences or a life that they have a hard time being fully present for. And so uh, in many ways you were taking for some people, people who have already been deeply harmed through childhood trauma and are are saying, here is more trauma to try to, to push you out of this behavior. And it just doesn't work. And it's just extremely dehumanizing for people. And it's just a really the wrong approach. So I think, you know, I can't, I can't change whatever I supported for those first 30 years of my life but I can change my mind now. Mm -hmm. And I can say, you know what, we know better now. And when you know better, then the responsibility is to do better. And I think that's where we are now is inviting people into a conversation about how we can do better by inviting them to consider why what we're doing isn't working. And there is broad consensus even in Mississippi, where I do most of my work now that what we're doing is not working. I mean, we have incarcerated more people than almost anybody else on the planet. Um, yeah. And we have you know, super high rates of <laughs> opioid use and um, drug use and addiction. Uh, we see that it hasn't worked, but it's always hard to do something new, um, mm -hmm. you know, new for us and that it hasn't happened in our lifetime. But drug prohibition is a very recent invention. It's a uh, strange only in the last hundred years has has a society decided that, you know, attempting to eradicate entire plant species from the face of the earth is something mm -hmm. that should be done through the criminal justice system. Uh, and it just hasn't worked. And I think it's just really harmful. So for me as a, as a Christian, that is a big weight that I feel of um, if we have people who are, I believe, made in the image of God, how do we best handle something that is for many people the difference between life and death for them of preventable overdoses or, you know, crime, that sort of thing. So the, okay. So when I was growing up and kind of heard people who wanted to take a, this looked like a softer approach to drug use and mm -hmm. it, and softer because from the standpoint of criminal justice, if you're not 
you know, cracking down on crime or drug abuse, then you're being soft on whatever, whatever crime or drug abuse we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so when people would propose things like restoration, the, the way that I used to think, and, and probably you as well, it's like, well, you're, you're being soft on this issue and that people need to have some sort of like, hey, if you do this, you're going to go down this really bad path. It's going to make your life worse and you don't want to do that, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And so when you offer an alternative and you say like, right, what you're doing, what Ended for Good is doing is we're having a newer conversation that's saying this isn't working. Let's look another direction. And I, and I'm, and I know you have some ideas on what that direction looks like, but I can I can already hear the sort of conservatives not yet convinced worry that all you're doing is creating a social program or advocating for this sort of like public welfare system that is going to throw a lot of money into people who are doing bad things. And mm -hmm. does that make does that does that objection make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Um and I think the one bef before that that I hear most frequently is this will encourage drug use. You're just basically kind of putting a green light. You know, if we stop criminalizing it, what are our kids going to think? Hmm. They're going to think we don't even care anymore that, you know, well, it's not really, it's not bad. You know, uh, it's going to be legal now and legal means do it. And we just, to me, that is, I understand that. I'm a parent of three boys. So I, I understand where they're coming from on the one hand. On the other, we don't use that argument with pretty much anything else. Uh, we don't use it with alcohol. We say, you know what? Alcohol can really harm you and it harms a lot of people, um, but it's legal. Uh, we're going to put age restrictions on it. We're going to educate you about how it can harm you, but we're not going to criminalize it for adults. We do the same thing with cigarettes, you know, cigarettes, very harmful. Uh, so what do we do? Well, we address those through education, prevention, and through regulatory models like, you know, age-based purchasing. And we don't, we don't see that as encouraging our young people to smoke cigarettes. We see that as cigarettes are not great, but, you know, adults can smoke them if they want to. Uh, it's going to have really adverse health consequences for them. But that's, that's something that we're, we're allowing them to do because criminalizing that would be even worse. And that, I think, is where people can hear maybe the work that End It For Good is doing, where they cannot hear other legalization efforts, because we're not advocating for use. I don't want my kids using drugs, but I also don't want them to be criminalized if they do make that choice. I don't want other people's kids to be put in jail for something that we actually need to address as the issue it is, not as a criminal justice issue. And so I, I think even if you just took, um, I'm kind of a, I'm a small government person, so I'm not a big fan of huge new government programs. <laughs> I don't think that tends to go very well. Um, but even if just taking the amount of money that we're putting into a criminal justice approach and shifting that over into um, a health-centered approach, even if we say, well, we're not going to put any more money into it, but we're going to shift the money into where it actually is going to make a difference. Mm -hmm. um, I think we would see massively better outcomes because that is what you see in other parts of the world where they have started to rethink this criminalization yeah. of substances and started to do things that are inconceivable to American minds, such as heroin-assisted treatment, uh, where doctors are allowed to to prescribe heroin for heroin addicted people and they can come to a clinic and use it on site. They can't take it home. 
And what they found is that it allows people to regain a a stable life and to build employment and family bonds again, to build a life that they want to be fully present for. Uh, And many of them stop using heroin on their own as the other part of their life is rebuilt. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that in the United States, I think we have this, you know, with 50 different states and not only that, like there's other areas, you know, there's other it, it breaks down differently depending on like how large your city is and things like that. Like for people who are unconvinced, I'm with you on this, by the way, mm-hmm. but for people who are unconvinced, it seems to me that there's a really good way to like try this out slowly so that you can show like what you just said, that there are heroin addicts that are no longer, that, that are like voluntarily slowly weaning themselves off of it mm-hmm. or have chosen like the other part of their life was rebuilt so they no longer need it. Now, clearly there might be, you know, people who relapse and you know, all that, but mm-hmm. like, we have the opportunity. It's not just like, you know, people, a lot of people who are saying, well, we should stop this sort of, you know, whatever government program, criminal justice law, whatever it is, often think like, oh, we're just going to yank the carpet away and all of a sudden it's just going to be good. And that's not really what you're advocating for necessarily. Right. Is that like, we can, we can roll it back. It's not like, let's just snap our fingers and it's all whatever. But like, there's ways in which you can get to the goal. And usually that's how politics works. Like, you know, it's very rarely do, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. large things just disappear overnight. Right. I mean, I know alcohol prohibition was was ended overnight pretty much. But, you know, I, I think the the approach to things with healthcare is really important because we are, we are talking about substances that we are putting into our bodies. It's not a matter of, I can't even think of an example off the top of my head. Like, it, it literally is about our health. Mm-hmm. And so right. it's not simply about our be- about our behavior because I think we all know that there are some minor benefits, if not major benefits, to certain drugs mm-hmm. um, that that are currently illegal, depending on the state that you live in. So it's it's one of those things where it's like, well, okay, I could see a marginal benefit, and so you know we can we can kind of go in that direction. But, you know, you, you said it was unfathomable to a lot of Americans that there are places where you can have a doctor prescribed heroin. And that is, that is, that is a new thought. But <laughs> I don't know. I just, I, I'm all about experimenting um, <laughs> with, <laughs> with, with things to some extent. That, that sounded worse than it, than, than it is mm-hmm. in context of this conversation. But you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, we did it on the End of For Good podcast that I host. We interviewed the doctor who's been the lead doctor at a clinic in Canada that does this. They do um, heroin-assisted treatment. And I said, you know, how do you, how do you talk to people about, um, you know, something that is so controversial? What do you tell people? And he said, he said, the thing is, if you look at the data, this is not controversial at all. This works. It is a, it is the best form of treatment for heroin addicted people. The problem is that it's difficult for people to want to believe what is true about the data that says that it works. Um, but it's not controversial based on the data. I thought, wow, that, that's a, that right, is an interesting right. way to, to think about it. But for him, um, the data has proven over years that it is um, the best form of treatment out there. Yeah. For heroin addicted people. And that's um, it is sad to me that we will lose thousands and thousands and thousands of more people's lives that could be preserved and that could still be alive and have an opportunity to to get help. If we would look at what actually works and be willing to um, to do those things. So you, you mentioned, you know, people who are unconvinced. There are a lot of people who are unconvinced, but one of the the great fun things about what I do is that I'm I'm always talking to people who aren't convinced. That's our 
that's our goal is to always be in groups of people who haven't thought about these things before, to invite them on this journey to consider changing their mind. And we had a man who came to one of our recent discussions. We host community discussions in different cities. And he is kind of like a typical Mississippi conservative uh, lifelong Mississippi roots for generations. He's middle-aged, he's white, he's lifelong Republican, evangelical Christian, kind of the, the typical, very difficult to change his mind, um, who people would think would be least likely to change their mind on this issue. And he came to one of our recent uh, discussions and he said, you know, I watched your TED talk a couple of times and um, I've been thinking about this. And I read Johan Hari's book, Chasing the Scream, which we highly recommend. We use that in a lot of our work, uh, which is kind of the history of the drug war and what's happened. And he said, you know, this, this to me feels like an earthquake to rethink this. And I talk about that in the um, TEDx talk that I did that for me, it has, it felt like an earthquake, like a rug getting pulled out from under me to rethink an issue that is so deeply embedded in conservative political thought as drug prohibition. And he said, you know, but I want to know if what you're saying is true. I want to know if this is really right. And this could really move us forward. And so I'm trying to, here I am, I'm here, I'm discussing and I'm Mm -hmm. open. And so we had this, you know, we provide dinner for everyone and um, I do a presentation Then we have guided discussion with everyone who's there. And at one point in the evening, another person who attended said, well, I, I just think we need to decriminalize drug use. Like let's help addicted people, but I definitely don't want to legalize anything. And he said, well, I don't know, because if you don't legalize, you don't get rid of all the crime and all of these other, you know, the, the potency, you know, purity problems of overdoses and all of that. So I just think you'd have to legalize to get the most benefit mm. um, from, you know, how do we how do we decrease harm the most, not just to people who are addicted? And so I thought, I'm seeing the wheels turning here. Um, and then the next day he sent a text and he said, how do we get this done? So I get to watch that kind of process happen. It's often a process over months or a year or more for people when they first come into contact with the ideas of ending a criminal approach to drugs and legal regulation again. Um, And then for some of them, being able to make that journey to say, yes, that this is what I want and I've changed my mind. And people are changing their minds. We see that happening all the time, um, not again because they want people using drugs, but because they're they are realizing that when you look at the best way to reduce harm, this is the best way, and that's what I see it as. As it, this isn't a perfect path; it is the most realistic path and the best path for us to decrease harm from the most people. It is the world that I want my kids to grow up in. It's the world I want my grandkids to grow up in. It's a world where. Fewer people are dying of overdoses. There's far less crime. And we have appropriate responses to people who use drugs in the ways that best help them to stop using and to get help if they are addicted and ways that are that we're honestly educating our children about the real potential harms of drug use. I never heard growing up about um, drug mixing. You know, your, your chances of death are far higher if you mix drugs. Well, I think that comes because when you only use fear, you can't also educate, honestly, at the same time. You can't say, if you were to use a drug, I want you to know that if you mix alcohol with another downer, another depressant drug, you're far more likely to die 
from an overdose. Um, those kinds of truths that people need to know if they are going to stay alive um, just are not things that we are uh, at this point willing to put out there because the hope is if we white knuckle it and just scare our kids enough, they're not going to use. And unfortunately, most parents, um, many parents, I shouldn't say most, many parents um, know that they did their darndest to keep their kids from experimenting and it hasn't worked. And now many of them are losing children to overdoses. And so we're still hanging on to this idea that if we just it's almost like we were we are pretending that everything is okay when the house is burning down around us and we're losing just tens of thousands of people every year and that's just that is not a cost that i that i as a as a person and as a christian can continue to bear and i, I want to save those lives well i think our listeners want to live in a world that you want to live in too christina so i want people to know how they can be uh, informed how they can make better arguments in this direction. I think there's a lot of over overlap in you know libertarian Christian view and what you're what you're advocating for here. So tell us a little bit about End It for Good and where can people find you uh, about your podcast as well. Yeah, you can go to our website enditforgood.com. There's links to our podcast um, and other things there. If you want to see the TEDx talk that I did, which is basically presenting the research and experiences that changed my mind and a lot of the journey that I shared today in 20 minute form, that's a good shareable content. Uh, you can find that at TED.com and just search my name, Christina Dent. And you can find our podcast um, on iTunes or it's linked on our website as well. And we, we basically try to take different aspects of drug prohibition, the drug war, all different kinds of parts of that um, and delve into it often with a guest every week um, or every couple of weeks and um, just give people a continued way to, to keep learning because so many of the people that we engage with are new to these ideas. So we want to provide them with more ways to learn and more ways to create that new kind of framework. So <laughs> I'm exploding their old framework um, mm -hmm. and then want to help them to rebuild a new one to say uh, the, there are good answers out there to your questions. I've asked hundreds of questions in my own journey, and I'm convinced that there are good answers, not perfect answers, but good answers to all of those questions and all of the fears and all of the uncertainties. And I think this is uh, the best path forward. So for people who are readers, I would highly recommend reading Johan Hari's book, Chasing the Scream. Uh, the subtitle of that is The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. It's incredibly readable. It is um, narrative written, but it's gripping, well-researched. And we have used that. We have sponsored copies for Mississippi readers, um, and we have sponsored about 2,000 copies of those so far for people who want to to go deeper and to understand. And that is by far the best resource on the market period that we have found for helping people understand what's really happening with the drug war and why those things are happening. And then a couple different options for a path out. So he goes into, you know, what's Switzerland doing with heroin assisted treatment, what's happening with marijuana legalization, what's happening in Portugal where they decriminalize drug use. They didn't legalize the substances, but just, um, stopped putting people who are using them in jail. That's an incredibly helpful book. And I would also recommend Timothy King's book, Addiction Nation. Um, he's a Christian and is writing um, from his own experience 
um, with addiction and that being handled as a health issue instead of a criminal justice issue. Very unique perspective because most people don't get what he got. And his interweaving of that with his Christian faith and how the church can better engage with issues like this. It's a really powerful book also. And of course, if you'd love to get in touch with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at Christina at enditforgood.com. Awesome. Well, Christina, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It was great. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.